all, all we're going to do is we just talk about the stuff we spoke about the other day, like the school stuff, etc. No, absolutely. You know, um, you fire away, so to speak, or intro or whatever it is we do. I'll tell you what, for, for people that don't know you, give, yeah. us a, give us a potted history of your background. Uh, yeah, sure. A little bit about me. Um, forgive me, I'll just kind of fairly succinctly give you some of my background in that. Um, I'm, I'm Manchester born and bred, good old Manchester as they say. My parents are from Jamaica. Um, I left school at 14, which a lot of people find interesting. Uh, no, I wasn't kicked out of school. My birthday's in August and in my, in my youth, when you were August born, you were always the youngest in the class. Yeah, I'm yeah. August born as well. All oh, right, so you, well, you know the parallels then, isn't it? So you possibly not so much 14. But anyway, left school at 14, went straight into the army as you do, as one does, and spent 20 odd years in the army um, doing what army people do and playing loads of sport and traveling around the world, really. I was quite fortunate in that respect. Um, we'll get on to our ages later, but i.e., when I was in the service like yourself, there weren't so many wars and conflicts as there are today. That's right, yeah. So, hence, uh, probably like yourself and many others, I was fairly okay at sports. I spent a lot of time in tracksuit traveling around the world playing sports for the army and the Royal Army Medical. Corps, pick up the medical corps. That's what I represent, by the way. Oh, uh, yeah. Say again, mate. You, you in the medical corps? Yeah, it's Royal Medical Corps, mate. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I, know that. yeah, I wanted to be a royal engineer, but uh, when I went to join up and say, you know, go in there, unfortunately, the intake says boys' service is like, a bit like boarding school, to use the analogy. All right, yeah. Do your terms, etc. Uh, when I went to sign up, basically, the engineers were full at that time, September 70 intake. There you go. A lot of people start doing some maths now. But um, yeah, when I went to join, <laughs> was, yeah, they're all working it out, aren't they, between you and I? And these two guys look very young for their ages. But uh, we'll let them, yeah, we'll talk about exfoliating in another clip, maybe. But um, yeah, when I went to join up, sorry, my apologies, going into it, there was either the Royal Engineers or the Royal, Me uh, sorry, my apologies, the Royal Artillery or the Royal Army Medical Corps. And I knew very little about the Army, other than the fact that the artillery sounded a bit too serious. And the medics, I thought, well, what the hell? give the medics a go. So hence, 20 odd years in the Royal Army Medical Corps in Ardius Fidelis. That's wow. the core. Yeah, steadfast in adversity. That's the core motto. But, you know, moving forward, um, I left the Army, moved to Maidstone in Kent, where I worked as a medical practice manager in a doctor's surgery for 15 months. Yeah. I have to say this when I'm doing training. Interestingly, I came across more violence and aggression 15 months in a doctor's surgery than I did 20 odd years in the Army. Yeah. Okay. Default, that's tongue in cheek. But the point I'm coming to though is that I, the last thing I expected in the surgery was some of the topics we were going to speak about. Mm. Yeah. yeah, I can remember it fairly clearly. The first time it happened in the waiting room, it kind of felt surreal. You know, the things we support people around, it literally did feel surreal. It took me a second or two to get my head into, we need to do something about this to try and stop it before it goes crazy and get out of hand. Yeah. Um, Left the surgery, not because of the violence and aggression, but to go into training um, in 94, May 94. I was fortunate enough to get a job at Kent Police. Uh, it was advertised as a PTI, physical training instructor. To be honest, from day one, uh, it was just straight into what was known then as police self-defense. Mm. We spoke about it, the, the, the Aikido Judo basis. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I arrest, arrest, arrest in defense. Yeah, so it's taking us back now. You're getting me reflecting about stuff here, trying to remember all of this. Uh, but from day one, as I say, yeah, it was purely about police self defense, uh, which we now know as police personal safety training. You know, it's evolved over the 20 odd years. And importantly, whilst I was doing that role, um, I also then started to work in the communities. You do, you know, I'm what I call it community engagement. Yeah. You know, um, 
starting, I'm going to say, the local community group, just giving them some tips and advice where, you know, things evolved into um, getting the time off from a policing perspective to go and give these talks was becoming difficult. So then I started to uh, get authorities you had to do in those days, you know, to get permission to do work outside of policing. I'm smiling now, you know, because we look back to those days and I'm sure we look back to as well, exactly. After the youngsters will probably look at us and think, what, you have to get permission to do this. <clears throat> Excuse me, but we did. And as I say, because time, getting time off, particularly during the day, was becoming more and more difficult, then I, as I say, got permission authority, as we called it, to be able to do the training outside. Uh, since then, I've done, I'm now a part of the board of the Institute of Conflict Management, uh, which takes it wider. There's a lot around health and social care, education, as we'll speak about a little bit later on. But importantly, you know, if we think about all sectors, whether it be private, public, or I'm going to say community group sectors, where people support people around customer service, mm. whilst, if I can use a generic analogy, 80% 80, 80 of the time there are thereabouts, that service provision goes well, as you and I know, and many others know, there's about 20% of the time across all sectors when things start to go wrong or have already gone wrong. Yeah. You know? And like you and many of our colleagues up and down the country throughout the world, without using too many cliches, what we're trying to do, isn't it, is empower people to do the right thing, i.e. prevent it happening in the first instance. If they fail to do that, then the confidence to de-escalate and then, as we know, in some known high-risk areas, and I use the point known high-risk areas, as we'll come to talk about, then having to manage challenging, disruptive, aggressive, violent behaviour. Yeah, no worries. And we'll talk about what we mean by that, really. Um, just a final point about my introduction. Uh, along with yourself and many other colleagues, well-respected colleagues you and I know, uh, do the expert witness reporting, uh, which sometimes then cross-references with oral evidence in courts or tribunals or inquests, i.e. hearing proceeding, where, as you know, from solicitor groups, we receive case files and we're asked to give our opinion based on the case file evidence of whether the, I'm going to say, use of force actions to use a generic reference was appropriate, proportional, or necessary based on the circumstances of the evidence as presented. You know, that, they, I would say, is a fairly succinct synopsis about myself just linking into this chat we're going to have. Yeah, it's very, very similar to, to mine. But what, what's interesting is, is, is um, when we get to court and we're writing these reports for court, and you're seeing the information come in. Yeah, I mean, some of the advice, and this is what I wanted to do this with you. Some of the things that people get told on training courses by by trainers, you know, or even their managers sometimes about what they can and can't do. It's absolutely mad. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> go on. You know, the, the classic is is your you know, your, your single person restraint. You know, that's a classic one. And the other right. one, which is which for me is is one that I, I you know, time and time again I get it, and I know we've talked about this, is no restraint policies. Oh gosh, yeah, <laughs> please. <laughs> well, for me, there's two great areas to start. Which, in fairness, we could spend all day. But um, let's start with no restraint. Then, I mean, lead on with some of the examples of things you just had, and then we can take it where it needs to go. Please. Well, I mean, you know, we, we had I had a case in court, and I know you've had many where. You know, a teacher was was uh, basically disciplined by the school. You know, and, and was put under investigation because the school had a no restraint policy. Uh, but the teacher felt the need to restrain to stop the child from harming itself. You know, mm. and um, they said, "Oh, we have a no restraint policy." He did the right thing. You know, the police weren't interested. The police said, "No, the guy should be given a commendation." You know, but the school said, "Yeah, but we have this policy, so whack, you're off." You know, we're, we're going to investigate you, and they actually suspended him. And uh, I, I got involved with with, with that, and. 
but yeah, the first question I asked them, I said, so, you, you know, you have a no restraint policy. They said, yeah, yeah, we have this no restraint policy. I said, right. So there's no risk of staff ever, ever need to restrain. The head teacher said, no, 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 there's none whatsoever. I said, that's great. I said, because you obviously, if you understand health and safety, you'll know that there's no need to have a, have a policy for something that you don't need to do. And he just looked at me and went, what do you mean? I said, well, the reality is, I said, I said is you just don't want staff to train and you just don't want to actually pay for the bloody training. And um, yeah, we, I mean, a lot like you, we got, we got the case thrown out of court. Give me one second, mate. I just got to put this switch on, hang on. Yeah. No problems, no worries. No worries. So, so I didn't want to run out. Run out of juice in my laptop, they're not plugged in. But uh, what's your take on, on no restraint policies? Yeah, another problem. Well, similar to you, I mean, again, I was, uh, I was invited to deliver some training, you know, um, I'm going to call it, the heading was challenging behaviour and breakaway training. Yeah. So uh, following, I'm going to say, the discussions around TNA training news analysis, you know, I then obviously rolled up to deliver the training and made some reasonable assumptions, which I'm open to verify in the training, about the fact that they're obviously coming across challenging behaviour, which is documented in some way, shape or form. Mm. Anyway, we start doing the training, you know, we do the usual things, uh, what do you call it, the introductions, get a bit of context about people's experiences. Because uh, as you know yourself, sometimes what you're asked to deliver and people's experiences are a little bit apart sometimes. You know, so importantly, we can contextualize the training to the people who attend. Well, anyway, we're, we're delivering the training and yeah, definitely gone past 10 o'clock anyway, probably going towards coffee break. Uh, we're talking about things and we're talking about use of reasonable force and we're getting into the areas of common law duty of care. When somebody pipes up to me, um, excuse me a second, yeah, yeah, well, we have a no hands-on policy. Okay, just explain to you what you mean by no hands-on policy. Yeah, we're not allowed to touch people. And I must be honest, it's one of those moments where you think, okay, I'm going to remain calm here. Not that I feel professional, but <laughs> I'm kind of raging inside. I really am, you know. And I must be honest, looking back, uh, probably could have done it better, but because of the emotion and getting excited about wanting to do the right thing, of course. Yeah, I must be. I did the old, uh, it wasn't the best approach, but anyway, I walked over to the, to the whiteboard and I said to them, can somebody explain to me what the title of this course is? Yeah. And you can imagine some of their reactions. Uh, what do you mean? What's the title of this course? Well, Challenging Behaviour and Breakaway Training. So I wrote it up on the board, Challenging Behaviour and Breakaway Training. So, okay, what's your thoughts about breakaway training then? Got a few comments. I said, right, let's go back to then. Somebody's just said to me, you've got a, a, no, a no hands-on, no restraint policy, etc." And I'm like, yes, that's right. So I said, so... Why are we doing this training? Yeah. And somebody said, What do you mean, why are we doing this training? Well, I said, We've got a no hands on policy. Why are we doing breakaway training? Then it doesn't make sense. And of course, you can imagine there was a tumbleweed of silence in the classroom at that point, you know, which I then went on to reiterate, you know, can I suggest to you that you put it to your senior leadership team? And if you want, invite them down here. And I would say exactly what I'm going to say now. I will go as far as to say, A, your policy is wrong. B, potentially it could be illegal, you know, and of yeah. course that's part of some murmuring. And I said, look, this is probably a good time to adjourn. Go and speak to your SLT. And I say, I'm happy for them to come and speak to me or I'll go and see them and reiterate based on our conversation what I've just said to you. So yeah. no restraint policy markets, sorry. It goes against everybody's basic human right, doesn't it, around liberty? Well, it's the usual thing, you know, it's, it's, it's a health and safety issue. You know, if, if staff are expected to do it, then the Health and Safety Work Act kicks in, so it becomes a legal requirement. You know, I mean, <clears throat> obviously if they do a risk assessment and they say, right, there's, there's no need to ever restrain anyone, so you might have, you know, an environment where you've never got to touch anyone, then you don't need training because the risk assessment dictates that. 
Absolutely. But, but going back to your point, why would they put on a training course if they don't need it? Exactly. <laughs> well, and sorry to go across my head's my comment about raging inside to think, why am I here? You know, to deliver breakaway training. You know, I mean, I, for me, I should say we did address it and we did carry on doing the breakaway training. I made the recommendation and put it in writing. You perhaps need to review the content of your policy, as you can imagine. Another one I get, and I know we spoke about this before, is, is um, where organizations say to their staff, well, you don't need any training because you can use force to restrain someone or defend yourself under common law. And they go, right. <clears throat> and then they're, they're going to discipline their staff if they don't like what they do, but they haven't provided them with any training. Now, I was talking to Eric about this. And you know, mm -hmm. Eric, for those that are listening, Eric Baskin is a lawyer at Liverpool, John Moores. And we had this discussion. And I don't think people actually realise that common law actually sits, sits under statute. Yes, indeed. Yeah, so the Health and Safety Work Act sits above it. So if, if an employer says, well, hang on, you know, you, you know, just use your common law rights if you have to do it, they're by default saying, we've got a problem and you need to use force to defend yourself or restrain someone. They're also admitting, if they say, we're not going to train you, but you can use your common law rights, that they're breaching the Health and Safety Work Act. It, it's crazy that they get away with it. No, absolutely. And I think it comes back to the point you said as well. And, you know, we're going to be using a lot of referencing, but, you know, 20 odd years plus down the line, as we'll also expand on in, involved in, you know, uh, prevention management of, I'm going to say, challenging aggressive and violent behaviour. We still have to take people right back. And you've already made reference to it. The health and safety at work out foreseeable risk. Yeah. Foreseeable risk, which leads us into two key areas, doesn't it? I.e., Either a service user, a patient, a customer, a person has demonstrated, displayed some form of challenging behaviour which has been recorded. Post the recording of that incident, then we have some kind of, oh, well, of course, let's look after the welfare of the people who are involved, of course, not forgetting that, of course, which is significantly important. But having considered and uh, looked at the welfare of the individuals involved, all parties, then we need to look at, don't we, i.e. some behaviour analysis which led up to, I'm going to call it challenging behaviour to use the generic, but equally importantly, what measures can we organisationally put in place yeah, to kind of reduce, isolate that risk? Yeah. But that mm -hmm. gives us our known risk factors, doesn't it? You know, and again, you know, and I am going to keep making the point, and you know, I won't make any apologies to being a broken record. Health and Safety Work Act, foreseeable risk. Foreseeable <laughs> risk. Yeah. See, thing about being a broken record, I heard a brilliant, <clears throat> a brilliant story. And it was, it, was a, it was a story about a, a preacher. And mm -hmm. the preacher got, uh, you know, came into this church. He was a new preacher in the church. And he gave his first sermon, and all the people there thought it was brilliant. And they came back the second week, and he gave the same sermon. So they thought, well, we'll give, we'll give him a bit of slack. It's the second week. And they came back the third week, third Sunday. He gave the same sermon. And he gave the same sermon for six weeks. Right. So at the end of it, the elders of the church got together with him. And they said, look, we'd like a word with you. And he said, well, yeah, well, what is it? They said, you, you preach the same sermon for the last six weeks. And he went, yeah. He said, no, I'm gonna keep on preaching it until you get it, you know? And so the whole point about being a broken record is it, it's relevant that people go back to the basics and there's no point in moving forward. And, and you know, I hear all this stuff, oh, we're doing advanced stuff. Oh, all right then. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> you know, for me, advanced stuff is only the basics done better. You know, I don't know what you're doing. Oh, mate, please. <laughs> uh, I think we're on the same page. The language might be a little bit different. But let's keep it straightforward, isn't it? See, the basic, and I just use the generic reference, advanced, but it must transition from the basic. But there must be a need for it, yeah? Because we can do all this fancy advanced stuff, but let's get the basics right. And even coming back a pace, and a conversation I often have with people is, who's responsible for our safety in the workplace? 
And, you know, actually, to my surprise, I get a lot of silence from a lot of people, which does concern me slightly in context. Mm. But it's, they're not getting invariably, well, we are, we the staff. And I'll go, okay, fair enough. But who's, who's ultimately responsible for our safety? You know, you know where I'm going with this, of course. Yeah, yeah. Well, management are, yeah, of course, great. So, how do management know about the risks? Mm, yeah, lots of answers. No, 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 keep going. Risk assessments, right, I like that. Risk assessment, great. But who or what informs the risk assessments? <laughs> and then, well, we do. How do we do that? Well, in the incidents we report, all right, brilliant. Now we're starting to get somewhere. So let's come back a face. So if we don't report it, guess what? If it wasn't written down, it didn't happen. <laughs> so management can look straight in the eye and go, Travel, Mark, what risk? Yeah. <laughs> you know, and you know, but again, you know, yeah, we come right back to our duty of care, isn't it, as a staff, is to manage upwards. Mm. Management's duty of care, as we know, is to review the information that's reported up or disseminate the outcome of that review, isn't it? Yeah. And that's where the 18360, call it what you want, comes into play. Well, it's actually health. On the front, yeah. Go back a pace. Yeah, I mean, it's actually a health and safety model that you and I know that we use regularly, which is yeah. the HSG 65 model, you know, which, which dictates how the information flows and proactive and reactive reporting and that sort of stuff. And, you know, when I'm doing consultancy work, as I know you do with companies, we use that model as, as, as a framework to make sure that the information is coming in and we feed into it from training and staff feed into it. But then, you know, it leads on to the other, other point I want to discuss with you is, is, you know, when these organizations or some organizations implement training, mm. they're very much still, and this, I, you know, I'm going back now nearly 30 years when I started doing this, you know, they're relying on the training provider dictating what they need. <laughs> yes. You know, and it's some of the mad stuff, you know, you, we, we hear, you know, I mean, I was, I was working with a school some, some time ago, and I don't do a lot of stuff at school, but I know you do. And they, they said to me, they said, oh, you know, you, you, you're going to talk about common law. And I went, yeah, yeah, I'll talk about common law if you like. What do you want to know? They said, well, is it true that only teachers have the right to use force under common law and teaching, and teaching assistants don't? And I went, where did that come from? And they said, yeah. well, that's what we were told in the training course. The training provider told us. So I got in touch with the training company and I said, look, um, this bit of advice you've given them, I said, I'm just here doing a bit of consultancy work. And they said, yeah, 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 yeah. Te teachers, you know, teachers have a common law right to the pupils, but teaching assistants don't, so they can't use force under common law. And, you know, jokingly aside, that's dangerous. <sighs> well, particularly from a training provider, you know, and before I get into that, you know, just to kind of expand on what you've been talking about there, let's go back a pace, isn't it? But for schools and all clients to do their due diligence about the people who are coming in to provide the training. Yeah. You know, the factor, and again, you know, so many topics here, isn't it? With respect, we could spend a lot of time oh. discussing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we, we, we got to doing this because we were having a conversation on the phone the other day about a school, uh, sorry, a, a parent that got in touch with me. Do you remember? Yes, indeed, I remember it well. And she got in touch because her son came home and he, he's about to be done. You know, they're going through a diagnostic process with him in a moment. They think he's got ADHD or autism. He's, got, he's on the spectrum. They've just got to formalise the diagnosis. But he's certainly got behavioural problems at school. And the school's done really well with him, you know, in terms of progressing his education. But the, mm. the son came home and he said to his mother, oh, I, was, I, was, I was restrained today. And she was quite concerned about that. But it was the way in which he was restrained. You know, it was the hands on the back of the neck and pushing the head forward and taking him down to the ground and holding him on the floor. And she took him to the, the hospital and they said, yeah, he's got soft tissue damage around the back of his neck. So she just did a Google search and she found me. 
Mm-hmm. Found a couple of other people as well, and she asked my advice because initially her and her, her partner, her husband, were literally fuming. They were going to go into the school all guns blazing. And I said, no, no, don't do that. You know, let's get the you know like you would do because you write reports like I do. Let's get the evidence first. Let's get the facts. Let's get the information. So I asked her to ask for a certain number of documents, which she did, uh, and we sat back. And, and when she went for the meeting, you know, the head teacher of the school was absolutely devastated by the fact that this had happened. But the teacher who was involved with the restraint had gone off sick as well because she was absolutely broken by it you know that, that they'd done they, they'd done it wrong mm-hmm. but it came back to another you know this point about wrong advice and apparently the, the trainer and i've got to say apparently because they can't remember whether they were shown it or whether they were told it because apparently the, the refreshers with this company's every three years and as you know skill retention was going to erode massively you know over three years <laughs> yeah. they, 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 they either told them or he demonstrated them that you put your hands on the back of the neck and push the child's head forward. So long story short, you know, got the stuff and it's all being sorted out now and <clears throat> it's going to come to a good conclusion. But this is the danger where, you know, I, 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 got, a, I got the medical report for this, got the training manuals, and there's nothing in there that said that they could use this technique. Right. So you, you get trainers making stuff up outside of the program to, to fill a gap that the program's not filling. <clears throat> Excuse me, a bit dry one. So you've certainly got a, a skill shortage or, or, you know, a gap in that, in that. But if you were doing what you were describing earlier on, where you're working with the organisation over a period of years, and this train provided been with the school for a number of years, you would <clears throat> get proactive and reactive feedback. Absolutely. And change the, the, the system. You know, so I know like you do, we've had, we've started off with system, well, version one, and we've ended up over X years with version 10, 11, 12, 13 and onwards, because things <laughs> need to evolve. But um, do you get that a lot with schools contacting you? Yeah, I do actually. I get quite a lot of schools, you know, around the issue of, well, yes, we've had to restrain a child on the floor, or we keep having to, and almost alluding to, and I do Q&A them about this, the default, because the child, let's say, has a lot of repetition of a particular form of behavior, mm. that we were default in taking that child, him, her, to the ground. And like yourself, you know, the first and most obvious question is, what was the need to take the child to the ground in the first instance? Mm. Well, because we were struggling to control him or her whilst they were standing. Okay, fair enough, I respect that, but we need more than that in the yeah. discussion. You know, was, was it imperative that you had to take the child to the ground? You know, what were the kind of, I'm going to call them situational factors that necessitated you in that instance taking the child to the ground? You know, and let's be honest, I appreciate, you know, in many instances, I respect your view, your opinion. I wasn't there, but we have to ask the question, you know, was it necessary for you to keep child hands on that particular child at that particular moment in time? You know, were there not any options around containment, for example? You know, and, you know, go on, sorry. And also, if they're doing that regularly, they, they can't get away with saying, it's you know it, it's an emergency situation or it's an exceptional situation because once they've done it once the next one becomes planned yeah so it's got to go back to your risk assessment absolutely and you know and, and again for me there's so many areas we could get into it but we'll come back to exactly that point isn't it i.e whether it's one or whether it's repeat behavior and by the way my definition from an introductory point of repeat behavior is two or more yeah my energy, yeah two or more well if it's frequency of occurrence then let's take a pace back and just expanding on what you said there. So I'm not repeating what you said. What are we putting in place to eliminate the risk? Yeah. If we think about hierarchy of risk control, you know, we're back to risk assessments again, health and safety, foreseeable risk. But, you know, 
eliminating the risk is an aspiration which we should all subscribe to i use the term deliberately an aspiration it is not reality i.e if travel henry and or mark Dawes display challenging behavior before they may potentially do it again yeah mm -hmm. whilst it remains the aspiration and that's with the level we should be working to the reality i say the reality is what are we putting in place to reduce isolate and control that risk before it reoccurs you know yeah. and make the risk let me just make the reference to <clears throat> excuse me i must be catching your coffee the reference to triggers and behaviors sorry my apologies back on track now yeah the reference to triggers and behaviors isn't it you know yeah. and i'm not just trying to kind of throw things out there sorry but you know factors a lot of people relate to this directly or indirectly but triggers and behaviors aren't we the physiological psychological reactions to the anticipation of danger mm. you know that nervous feeling inside of us isn't it because we feel it often before we think it you follow okay. now, i know we could debate that all day long but it is a feeling first isn't it then a psychological thought about yeah i feel nervous in my guts yeah but let's come back to that though yeah if we start to get those feelings from those triggers that are being displayed that's the point isn't it we need to be putting the de-escalation in place yeah even if it's as basic as depending on the circumstances thinking about your own body language you know not that we're being aggressive, so that's the door, apologies. <laughs> no, I think my, my good lady's coming down to pick up the door, Alfie's coming down, I think. But not that we're being uh, assertive in our body language, but we sometimes aren't we? We're very conscious of the fact that, you know, as an adult and a young child, then the fact that our stature's taller than them. You know, we're conscious sometimes, isn't it? Even though we're being quite open, we just want to reinforce that open, don't we, that open body language. Mm. And for me, and you know, sincerely, if we're consciously aware of our own body language and want to make sure it's more open and receptive in context then surely we're at the point of i'm going to call it an incident report or a near miss report if you follow where i'm going yeah yeah got to be if you're consciously thinking about it you've got to be at that stage of we're managing challenging behavior well let's go right back to sorry a moment let me just you know so you know we've had to let's say uh, positively handle the child yeah but i still stand by you know and going back to your point any training program involving physical intervention as a whole must, must, must incorporate stroke include positional stroke restraint asphyxiation awareness. <laughs> so again, we come back to this provider who's talking about, as we believe, routinely taking people down to the ground. What do you mean? I'll just close on this particular point. It's wrong, wrong, wrong. Mm. Sorry, I'll put it any clearer. Than that. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, I mean you know, Pete Bateman, you know, God bless him, he's yeah. with us. So, we were talking yeah. about this in the early 90s. Yes, I yes. What Pete's first program that I went on, it, it was all about, you know, restraint reduction, positional asphyxia, and everything else. But yeah, no, you raised some interesting points. But see, for this to, to work, there's got to be a no blame culture. Okay. Yeah. So scared of being blamed that it then reverts into not reporting, it reverts into all that nervousness. Mm. Now, from my background, like you, you know, I came, I was in the forces. Well, I, I got commissioned and, and I, I became a pilot. Uh, you know, a lot of people, you know, they're quite right too. You should be standing up actually, Travel. You know. But um, yeah, I ended up going through the pilot training and I got a bit, you know, I hold my hands up. I failed it. I was useless, you know, because I'd been 10 years in the ranks and I was more interested in getting down the pub on a Friday night instead of flying an aircraft around at four o'clock in the afternoon. So I got, I got chopped. But the good thing about aircrew training was we were told right from the start, look, if you make a mistake, we need to know. 
because if we're open and transparent about it, it's going to it's going to prevent maybe a major incident later on. So our debriefs were absolutely brilliant, and that's the one thing I really liked about it. But when I go into organisations now, schools and care homes and hospitals, and you say, well, "What's the debrief?" I say, "Well, we fill out the incident report book, and that's about it." But the aspect of addressing the triggers and everything else isn't there. But also, staff live in in some areas live in a culture where they feel that if they report something, they could be blamed for doing it. Yes. So it, it drives the problem underground. Yeah, so that's that's another sort of area that people need to look at as a whole. If, if organizations structure the right debriefs and they, you know, staff are more forthcoming with it, we have more information, we can put it back into the system and help reduce restraint overall. You know, and I, I know you share the same thoughts. Well, I mean, obviously we hope people take a lot away from this, but one area I'd like everybody to consistently take away is this bit about, as you say, transparency. You know, it's 2020. I'm not saying it's perfect. But we go back to yours and my younger days, you know, when I would go and see the sergeant and say, I've got a problem. And he'd go, go away and sort yourself out. You know, well, let's be honest. That's tantamount to bullying, isn't it? Because the next right. time I have that same similar, well, you know, if I have the same similar issue, I'm yeah. not going to go back to the sergeant to drop my supervisor to tell them because I know the response I'm going to get. Mm. Yeah. Which means that I'm either going to avoid that situation that's developing. Yeah. Or I'm going to imagine it badly. Yeah. You know, but what I'm trying to get to, and like you, and, you know, I know we spoke lots about this, and I'm like you, we're both passionate about this transparency. All we want to do is empower people to speak up and do the right thing, i.e., talk to your colleague or your supervisor or manager and say, This person is causing me to feel this way. It's not that we can't manage the situation, we just want to be more empowered. If somebody else knows about it, we feel more empowered to do the right thing, whatever that means at the time. If they can't be. They can't do that in house. They they can whistleblow. Whistleblowers now are protected by law, you know. So if they have to go to that extent, which is a shame if they have to, but you know, it's it's there. It's the protections there. But listen, I, I want to read you some of the comments. Did you did you look at the the Facebook page by the way, with all the comments? Uh, on yeah, I look at the Facebook page. Can I just just before we do that? Can I just yeah. mention a, a colleague called uh, I don't think you've met him, Nick Inge. Nick Inge. Runs, yeah, yeah, he runs a company called I Trust Assurance, who does a lot on whistleblowing. All right. He's actually put a book out there as well, and forgive me, because hopefully at some time I'll introduce you to him and get to meet him, but that area about confidence and being empowered, yeah. certainly I trust assurance is what he does, Nick in. Sorry, I just wanted to give him a bit of a mention, sorry. It's your commission. <laughs> no, stop it. <laughs> <laughs> what are you doing to me? Let me bring this up. I'm going to try and share this screen now. So this, this, this may work, it may not. Let me just see if it comes out. Can you see that? Oh, yeah. Oh, well, bloody hell. I've got, uh, was, is this a younger looking you? This wasn't taken this week, was it? Is it what? Is this a younger looking you? No, no, it's just a gift, Trevor. It's just a gift. <laughs> Okay, well, go ahead, mate. Yeah, got it. I, I put this up and I said, look, I'm doing a, a video with an old friend of mine on Thursday who might have been one of the best training experts in the industry, but I couldn't get him, so I had to use you. Um, and as part of that video, we'll be discussing some of the, some of the mad things that somebody has been told, such as common yeah. replies, etc. And I asked them to put their comments down. Now, there's some great comments here, but I was looking through these. Like, I've got to show you um, this one. Hang on. Um, one from Heidi here. We mustn't talk to the person whilst we are holding them. Hey? Yeah. I mean, that, <laughs> So, Heidi's a brilliant trainer. She does a lot in schools, yeah. care homes, and etc. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, I, apologies. I, uh, I don't think I met Heidi. I, was, I know the name very well. Uh, we possibly communicated, but I don't think I met her. And Heidi, if I have met you, I do apologise sincerely. But um, 
excuse the pun, mate, and I've got to say this, I'm speechless at that comment. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, just, it's obviously if someone's told Heidi that that's what they've been told on a, on a previous training course. Uh, right, just on, which flies in the point of de-escalation customer service, doesn't it? Relationships. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, mate. Now, we all know about the basket hole, don't we? The, the single person restraint. Oh, you know, not, only is it, you know, not only is it a bad technique, but it's, it carries risk. It's also a lone working activity. And Doug's put here, a psychotherapist has done the review of a small child hold, T-wraps, stroke, tantrum hold, so it's safe for us trainers to keep on using, despite medical professionals stating otherwise. <laughs> um, something you mentioned on your introduction, single person restraint, as yeah. a part of the well, I, I was speaking at a conference once and um, some, I, I mentioned about the basket hold and I said, well, it, it shouldn't be used. There's enough evidence out there not to use it for various reasons. And this trainer said, well, we've done a risk assessment on it and, and therefore it's okay to use. I said, well, what did your risk assessment say? He said, the risk assessment said it was okay to use. I said, well, who, who did the risk assessment? He said, I did. I said, well, no. have you done a risk assessment course? He went, no. So all, all that was was the justification of advice, which is mad. Um, oh, here's one from Jimmy. Jim's a brilliant trainer. Uh, he's in Australia at the moment. Oh, yeah, Jim, yes, yeah, I met Jim. Oh, you yes. met Jim, haven't you? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've communicated a few times, yeah. yes. Prone position is fine, and it is okay to keep a person in prone restraint for three minutes, and we ask staff to time the restraint so we know it's three minutes max. Can I come in on this one? Many yeah, years ago, uh, many years ago, I was invited down to an NHS trust to give some uh, feedback on the re and the case review that had come up. And again, the trust policy was they could restrain people on the ground for 10 minutes. Yeah, exactly. The last three minutes, but 10 minutes. So anyways, you do, you, you make your notes, you have some reflections, think about what you're going to talk about. Went into the meeting, this point came up. And my first question was, okay, so could you advise me then, what is it you're expecting your staff to do at 10 minutes, one second, if they haven't already let go of that person? Mm. Just went silent. Yeah. Well, it, this, this came out. I think it, it was in, in in the wake of the Rocky Bennett case, wasn't it? They brought yeah, the three yeah. minutes. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yes. But there was no, there was no evidence to support the three minutes. Um, so no matter. You now Ricky's put one in. Having restraint PMBA training will solve all the problems around behaviours that challenge. Yeah. I mean, who tells them these stuff? You know. Oh, Nicholas come up one. If the patient is going to punch you in the face, you are not allowed to defend yourself. All right. Okay. Yeah, great. Well, actually, staying with that point for a moment, though, how yeah. many people do we hear say, uh, once they've done something to us, it's okay for us to then respond? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Gareth here, don't want staff to use breakaway techniques and wait on security team. Whoa. Oh, no, I'll tell, I've got to tell you a story on this one. This is brilliant. I did some work at a hospital once and I went in mm. and they said, we're, we're training the portering team to respond to calls for assistance from A&E. So I said, okay, so in my head then, that means that if there's a bit of violence in A&E, your portrait team are going to respond to a call for assistance and they're going to deal with that. They went, yeah. I said, what training have they had? I said, breakaway techniques. So I said, what about restraint? They said, no, no, we don't want to teach them restraint because if they hurt someone, uh, we could be sued. So we taught them to break away. So I said, so your portrait team are going to respond to a call for assistance and when they get grabbed, they're going to break away. They went, yeah. I said, who's coming? They said, well, we'll call for the police then. Absolute <laughs> madness. Oh, Paul's come up with a great one. I can teach restraint because I have a black belt in Aikido. <laughs> now, you know, I've got to be honest with you. I, I had a conversation with someone the other day on this who's a phenomenal martial artist, absolutely, you know, really nice guy. He's, he's hugely credible, done a massive amount of training and wanted to go in and just start teaching restraint. 
and I, and I said, well, it's, it's a different thing altogether because you don't cover the legislation when you do your black belt. You know, mm. and there's so many different legislations there. Kev Evans, basically. Uh, just, before, just before you move on to the martial arts, I'm going to be, I'm going to be controversial and no people I'm saying I'm going to be controversial. Martial arts training is a choreographed sport. Oh yeah, absolutely. And it's actually governed by Sport England if they have a proper governing body. So it doesn't come under workplace stuff. Yeah. Kev Evans, best pick I've seen of you yet, mate. Thanks, Kev, but it's nothing to do with the thread, buddy, but I appreciate it. Man, <laughs> <yeah. laughs> um, I'll come back to that in a minute, Ricky. Um, oh, I'm one from Nick Hazard here. That staff can just jab someone in the throat if they are showing any sign of aggression. Now, oh, remember, remember the jugular notch going back to the mid-90s? Probably, yeah. Yeah. We don't use it now, but I'm glad you don't remember it because we kind of stopped it not long after it was introduced. Oh, we stopped the strike, certainly. Now, Colin, <laughs> restraining a child where marks are left is illegal. We have to use techniques that don't leave marks. Okay, yes. <laughs> yeah. So we're using a holistic physical intervention approach. Yeah. Now, I've seen some mad martial artists that can actually knock you out without touching you on telly. I mean, maybe it's one of them, but I have no idea. Yeah. Yeah, and Porter, we don't restrain, we just call the police or if they are self-harming an ambulance. Yeah. Now that's interesting because if you look at the whole stuff that's come out now in the wake of Shenny Lewis, you know, yeah. with the Mental yes. Health and Use of Force Act, that was where nursing staff felt, or, you know, hospital staff felt they couldn't control the person, so they called for police and 11 police officers came up and the guy died as a result of that. Gosh. So, well, again, that, but that bit about you know, and we have to respect that police are working to a set completely different set of regulations and standards to other workers. Yeah, and Nicola's got a great one here, and I actually spoke to Nicola about this a while ago on a course. And by the way, Nicola runs like like you. Nicola runs an absolutely brilliant course on de-escalation and everything else, and it's very well structured on it. But oh, she, she it. staff can use a preemptive strike to change mindset. <laughs> Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, she, she was working with, with an organisation, I won't mention who they are, I actually know who they are. And she rang me up and she said, look, do, do you know, Travel, do you ever get that stuff where someone says something so stupid you actually doubt yourself? Yes, oh mate, yes, yes, absolutely. absolutely. Nicola, Nicola rang me up and she said, look, I, I, know, I know this isn't right, she said, but, but they're so insistent about it, I'm starting to doubt myself. She goes, they've just told me this, staff can use a preemptive strike to change mindset. Yeah, that's, that's for cracking up, yeah. Well, it's yeah. similar to, like you, I've had the conversation, you know, we can't use any kind of uh, restraint holds that cause pain. We're not allowed to do it. Mm. You know, beg your pardon? It's not our intention to cause pain, but, you know, we have to look at the probable, less likely medical implications, etc. Well, do you know what? I, I actually, on one of our conferences, Tony Bleakman was speaking, and I asked him to define pain. Yeah. And he said the medical professional has been struggling with it because you can't define it because it's a subjective issue. You know, I mean, I don't know what you're like going to the dentist, but I'm a, you know, I'm a big girl's blouse. I sit there and they bring the needle out and I know it's going to hurt and it hurts like hell. But my wife can sit there and they can jab away all day in her mouth and it doesn't feel it. It's the same needle, same type of skin it's going into, but two different responses based on the subjectivity. So how do you define pain? Well, can we, can we the part subjectivity and we'll come back to it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's another key factor in all of this. Yeah, well, Ricky Holder, care staff are not allowed to use any force in situations as they are untrained and will be sacked and prosecuted if they do. So, oh gosh. And these are from training providers, yes? Well, yeah, these guys have got, you know, these people here have gone in and, and done courses for staff who've been trained by someone else, other trainers, and they're the comments that they're hearing. And, you know, there's this loads of them here, you know, um, that have come out. Tony Power, we have a no harm policy, 
but we tell the staff there is a common law there is common law self-defense but we don't train them on that well i think we, we cover that one but no, no harm policy that's an interesting one i've come across that before but it's, it's absolutely crazy isn't it you know some of the stuff that, that goes on out there you know uh, people are being told yeah, i'm sorry i'm just shaking my head i'm a little bit lost for words momentarily on where to start you know but I mean, if I just look, pick up on the point you made about the old subjectivity of it all, et cetera, you know, and I think again, isn't it, it's that factor of, and particularly for us people as trainers going in, you know, whilst we have a set of regulation and standards, and quite rightly, we need standards to work to, but the use of force is, you know, for me, I want to say it, it's 100% subjective. It's 100% subjective, isn't it? You and I, you know, let's say we share many similar experiences and knowledge etc but by default you know you and i'll have a different start point of our reaction to managing a challenging behavior situation yeah. you know and to use the analogy you and i will either a go forward b contain three withdraw and get some backup and support you know but again i ask the question to people often you know who's responsible for our actions if we use force and of course everybody goes well we are we are we are and i go okay that's great here's my next question yeah who justifies your actions and everybody goes we do we do we do and I go, well, you might want to reflect on, think of that for a little bit, for a moment. Mm. You know, it's not us, is it? It's depending on the level of complaint or challenge that comes in, mm. it's the senior management team, as we know, the regulating authority, or a criminal court. You know, let's not forget criminal court struck civil court. Yeah, yeah. You know, you know, and, but, you know, if I say with criminal court for ease of reference, you know, and, and, it, you know, and again, it's a key element of the training, so many key elements in training. Our subjective views, don't they, need to be heard and understood objectively by the people sitting in judgment of us and or the people sitting in support of us. Because if they can't see it from our point of view, i.e., they don't, they don't feel, based on what we're telling them and the evidence presented, they don't feel what we did was appropriate, they don't feel what we did was proportionate, they don't feel what we did was necessary, i.e., reasonable and necessary under common law duty of care, then objectively they're not seeing it from our point of view are they no yeah. and you know we're just echoing what the court test is you know if you've got a court for reasonableness you know whether you use reasonable force then the first one is subjective what do you believe you did and then there's the objective test where the bench or the jury are going to look at it from from a detached perspective and go well wouldn't well, you know a normal person in similar circumstances would do the same same thing that's where they, they, they're coming from so yeah, yeah, it's, it's spot on what you're saying. But you know, this is why you know, and I'll do a bit of a, a bit of a pitch for you actually here, because I, I don't want to do it. You know, I'm, I'm slowing down as people know now. So you've just dropped out momentarily. I just dropped out. Are you Hello? back? Huh? I'm here. You you've gone still. Hello, I think you're back. Am I back? Yeah, yeah, you're back. I'm back now. You said, right. uh, yeah, you just said something about, yeah, I just say, yeah, you were saying about a bit of a pitch and dropped out. What a time to drop out. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah, well, I'll, I'll do the pitch now. But no, I mean, you know, because I'm I'm slowing down and, and doing, doing less now because I, I just want to. Um, but one of the things that is a, is a pitch for you is, is with all your expert witness knowledge, you know, mm -hmm. when, when a case gets to court, you know, the expense on the person trying to defend themselves is huge. The defense, the, the, you know, the, the cost of the organization taking a prosecution to court is massive. One of the things I'd like them to consider if they're watching this video is that, you know, you and I have been engaged as expert witnesses on God knows how many cases over the years, and it always ends up in a, in a court somewhere, either, you know, they can stop that before it gets to court. Absolutely. And, you know, what, what they should be doing is, <clears throat> with a bit of foresight, is coming to someone like you, 
you know, who, who is a credible expert witness with a huge amount of knowledge on the use of force and saying, look, we think that what happened here is wrong. We think this staff member did something wrong. Um, could you give us an impartial report on that, you know, prima facie report, an expert witness report on the situation from your detached perspective? And if they did that, they've got a subjective view of what the staff member did. They've got your yep. objective view as an expert witness, which you would submit to a court anyway. And, and then with a bit of feedback and consultancy, all that can be fed back into the management system. And if people were, were a bit more proactive in that sort of thinking, the cost of them getting that report written is nowhere near what they're going to pay in a court of law. No, and yeah, hey, thank you for that. And I think, you know, and you made reference to it as well, you know, as part of the introduction around this, you know, and again, you know, I and, you know, and those, but I can certainly provide the information about the various regulations, et cetera, that should be in place and the procedures that should be in place. Because mm. I think, you know, and again, one of, the, one of the key factors you mentioned before was the fact that the child went home and informed the parents that they'd been restrained. Well, you know, I, I have to confess, I'm, I'm flabbergasted that the school did not contact the parents to inform them of what had occurred or given them an insight so that they could have a formal sit down. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it just, just makes for, for, for good transparency, doesn't it, more than anything else? Well, absolutely. But certainly, yeah, as you say, from the, uh, yourself, we mentioned Derek, but uh, yeah, it's certainly from the, to give, to give an objective review and help them and assist them regarding some of the information that should be in place so that, you know, and if we can look at it from the point of view of things being equal, they can go and have an informed discussion around possible mediation with the school. Mm. Yeah, start from that point, you know, in fairness. So the parent just wants to know, you know, what happened regarding leading up to the events of my child being restrained. And in fairness, a school in many instances, you know, you know, let's keep the risk in perspective. As many times when they've done it and it's been appropriate, proportionate, necessary. But again, the school just wants to inform the, the parents in a timely fashion, don't they? Again, what, what led up towards them having to, you know, positively handle the child. There's also another dimension to this, and it's a bit that niggles me, which is why I think that a service like this is so important, is I do know, and I know you do too, and I know people watching this will have, will have noticed, some training providers or some training systems will say, these are the techniques we we actually teach you. And they'll basically slam the member of staff with, with a, you know, saying they were wrong because they either didn't use a technique that was in the manual or they used a version of it, you know. And when I, when I first started years ago, one of the things that bugged me, it still bugs me today, is they get trained in, in loads of stuff. And, you know, and let's just you know, think about this. We're talking about schools. Yep. No teacher applied for, for, for their job in a school to become a teacher. Yeah. See, like, you're off. Deborah, Deborah just going out. Let's try Hi, Deborah. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Yourself? Yeah. Interrupts my thing. Just, just, come, just come in and interrupt my family flow. <laughs> <laughs> you're, not as cool, you're not as cool as relaxed as you like to think you are, then. <laughs> hey, I am. Oh. It's just a gift. But we're going back to the point. Yeah. No teacher goes, right, I want to be a teacher. Can't wait to do the restraint training. Yeah, that's why, that's why, that's why I want a job as a teacher. They, they, join, they join the profession. Then all of a sudden they get told, oh, by the way, we're going to teach you this stuff. So there's no motivation to do it. So they go through and they learn their whatever system they learn. Mm -hmm. And you know, there's no motivation there. It's not, not at the forefront of their mind. They want to help, the vast majority of teachers, virtually all of them, go into the teaching profession because they want to make a difference to kids. They want to help kids. That's why they do it. Then all of a sudden they're told, well, you've got to now use force on the people you want to help. 
there, mm-hmm. there has to be a conflict somewhere along the line with that. And they put them through a training program where they probably don't want to engage in having to use it. Mm-hmm. And then they, when they go and use it, because they have to, they can't remember the technique as per the textbook. And what the training provider's done, and I, I've come across numerous cases that I've been involved with them, the training provider goes, well, you know, you've done it wrong because you didn't do the technique as is in the, in, the, in the manual, or it's not a technique that we taught. And what they're basically doing is they're not supporting that member of staff who then gets disciplined. And the dangerous part of this is, if it's dealt with internally, you get the disciplinary hearing run by people that don't have expertise like you have, they're, they've had no training on the use of force. Some of them might not even have proper training certificates or educational qualification or anything else. And they come to a decision that their member staff was wrong and they can dismiss them. And in some cases, they can actually send that teacher's details and put them on a list, you know, a child protection list. And that person is screwed. Yeah. Uh, now, where I've been lucky enough to get involved with these things, we managed to stop that at, at that stage and go, do you know what? It wasn't in the manual, but it was reasonable in those circumstances. And the reason that member staff couldn't remember it was, it's too complex. The motor skills that have gone into it are far too complex for them to remember. Mm-hmm. And they were trained two or three years ago. Well, yeah. you know, you, your retention of information is, is degraded massively. But overall, what they did was reasonable circumstances. And if that went to court, it, you know, he, that person would be, would, would be admonished of anything. Um, and we've dealt with it there, you know, at that level to save this escalation. Because the net effect is, you know, the, the other route is, if that member of staff did get dismissed and they appealed against that, and that appeal goes to court, the school could potentially lose if they didn't do their due diligence. And this is where I think plugging someone like you in, and you know, there's, I know there's other people out there that can do the same thing. You know, Andy Maddox and you know, Joanne Caffrey and, and Heidi and loads of people can do this sort of stuff. If they could get in at that stage, you know, and even if you, if, you, know, you charged it, whatever your fears for charging it, that, in comparison to what the cost would be if that went through a tribunal or through a court and then an appeal system, it's a drop in the ocean. I, I think it's desperately needed. Well, you, I mean, again, and can I just kind of just um, refer to an incident where a case we got involved with where uh, the organisation really should remain nameless, but I don't think it'll take too much to try and work it out. <laughs> a staff member had done a technique which involved... Uh, I'll just say a kick of the leg. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'm just sweeping kick. Let's just say it as it is. Come on. <laughs> okay. Well, you've done a sweeping kick. Yeah. And anyway, I got involved, as you say, late in the day when this had come to an internal review hearing. And a, a significant factor of this case hearing was around the fact that the staff member had used an inappropriate technique i.e it wasn't an approved technique and we'll come back to that point to expand on what you just said a moment ago so when we looked at him boiled down the photo in the book the manual they were following showed the demonstration being given with the right leg right <laughs> you know where this is going but bear with me i even said the officer didn't i there you go it's out now <laughs> uh, i'd used the left leg to deliver the the kick in context of managing a situation and you know, <laughs> bear with me when i say this was an extreme situation you just bear with me on that please yeah but we really got down to the discussion was the officer was using the wrong leg therefore he was potentially being disciplined You're joking i am not joking i am not joking i'll live and breathe so 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 what, what about well come back to the approved bit then if you don't mind if i can just pick yeah. up the 
uh, like you, I mean, one of my, I'm going to call them soapboxes in training, and people who've been with me in training and discussions will know, and I do say this is my soapbox moment. We must go away from using certain like approved techniques. You know, we could have debates about who approves and et cetera for themselves. We must start using terms, for example, like recognized techniques, because the point you quite rightly made, you know, a lot of this goes against A, the teacher's ethics. They don't want to be putting hands on, with respect. Mm. Most people who support people don't want to be putting hands on people. In oh. fact, yeah. So a combination of they've done the training, we've used recognized, well, my apologies, we've used principles and methodologies to apply the learning, yeah? Oh. Principles and methodologies. And I will say this because it's an important part. As you say, back in our early days, 20 odd years ago, the training was based around imitation, wasn't it? Everybody followed and did what the training said. And as we know from some of those comments and some of the examples we've had, there are trainers who still follow that mantra of imitation, do exactly what I tell you to do, no more, no less. Well, that fundamentally takes away people's learning. It has to be methodologies and principles, doesn't it? Methods and principles. Therefore, when a person in context has to apply a technique, then whilst he, and she, he or she wants to apply what they were taught in training, but because of the young child or the person's behaviours, which we can't predict, they apply the technique slightly different to what they were taught in training, then they need to evidence, don't they, in their incident reporting, yeah, their mitigation for what, why they try to apply, my apologies, why they try to apply a recognised technique as they were taught in training, what was the mitigation that wound up them doing something slightly differently? But that fundamentally does not make it wrong. Yeah? Thank you. Can't fundamentally make it wrong. And I, and I can go back, I can always remember a quote. I think it was in a schematic or a thematic inspection by the police going somewhere around 1996 or before. Uh, and it was, it was a, a quote from a chief constable. And he said, the purpose of training is to provide his, the officers with... The, the judgment, knowledge, information, and skills, so that in a situation of high emotional arousal, they can use their discretion. And the more you train them, and the more information you give them, the better their judgment and discretion will be when it comes to time to use it. And you can't make things strict. You know, you can't say, I mean, they're still doing this stuff, some people. When they, when they hold an arm, well, your thumb has to be behind and not in the front. You know, you know. Uh, okay, right. Yeah, if it goes behind, we can't support you in court. Really? Yeah. Uh, it's, it, and you remember start thinking, Christ. And they go into a restraint, and thinking, "Where's my thumb supposed to go?" And they're, they're not focusing on the person that they're, they're try, trying to control or de-escalate the situation. It's madness. Well, I was somewhere recently, you know, and again, the issue about the you mentioned earlier, the wrap or the basket hold came yeah. up in discussion, and of course, I introduced it underneath high risk technique, high risk technique. And the discussion is, you know, it's happened a few times in the last six months where people have said to me, but well, we were taught that recently. Yeah. You know, and I said, well, with respect, I stand by what I say in training. It's a high-risk technique, along with face down on the ground, as we know, the prone restraint, along with seat bent forward in a chair. I guess, you know, the high-risk techniques, along with one or two others, mm. you know. So I'm not saying, you know, you can't do it, but what's your mitigation for having to do it? Well, also... If you're planning and you're risk assessing this, if they say we're going to use this high risk technique, the first thing that risk assessment methodology says is, is can that be eliminated? Absolutely. It's a single person restraint. How do you eliminate it? You have two staff there. Okay. You. you know, Matt, do they have to go, you know, you're going to put them in prone. Yeah. Can that be eliminated? Uh, yeah. How? 
let's get a safety pod, let's get a piece of equipment, or let's put them in a jet. Right, then if you can eliminate it at source, there is no justification for doing it. It's only where you can't do this stuff. And time and time again, I've been on training courses, said, well, we haven't got a safety pod. Yeah, buy one. You know, yes. pal, I'm promoting your safety pod, by the way, and I'm not on commission for that either. No, no, but yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah and that's, that's why it's so important. No, that's brilliant, mate. I mean, anything you want to you add to this to, to finish up with? Um, I'm bored of you now. Say again? <laughs> <laughs> I knew I'd get you. <laughs> that was one of those splint responsible. What did he just say to me? <laughs> I can't believe that the old ones are always the best. <laughs> <laughs> joking aside, you definitely throw me down. But joking apart, I can't believe you did that on camera as well. Uh, joking apart, uh, please, please, uh, uh, anything we've said here, myself and Mark, hope you don't mind me saying, if you professionally do disagree with anything we said, then please come back and professionally challenge us on it. We're open to debate. Yeah? These are our views, our opinions, based on our interruption about some of our qualifications, knowledge and experience in this area. We're not saying we're fundamentally right, and I would love, seriously, sincerely, to have discussions with people. So, as I say, if you professionally disagree, come back to us, challenge us, but please give us your opinion as to why you disagree, and then we can have that informed debate. Yeah. I've got one final thing is, is if you are a parent and you're watching this, of a child that's been restrained in school and you don't know what to do, you don't know how to, you know, how to start, get in touch with Travel or get in touch with me and I'll put you in touch with Travel. You know, um, we can help you there. And in fact, I'll probably set up a web page with some information where you can download this stuff. And I know Nicola Lockery does a lot of stuff with this as well, as does, you know, loads of other people who, who can help us. We have a network of, of, of good people, experienced people who can help you. So if you are a parent of a child, been restrained, you don't know where to start, you don't know how to challenge it, you don't know what questions to ask, then come to us, because we've been doing this long enough now, we, we can advise you on that process and tell you what to ask for and, and what process to follow. Good stuff, and it, uh, guys, um, Travel, thanks for that, buddy. Good to talk to you. Thank you, appreciate the opportunity to chat to you. Hey, no problem at all, mate, and we'll catch up soon. Um, but all you guys watching this, thanks ever so much, and uh, we'll speak to you soon, no doubt. All right, Travel. Yes, thank you. Take care. Take you later, mate. See you later. Bye-bye.